I'm sitting in a small nook in the garden of Velenichav Centre on the Tlin Peninsula. It's been a glorious day. We've just come back from the beach. Uh, we've been working very hard here, but more about that in a little while. But I just want to say that I'm here with Paula Crutchlow, who ha- was dramaturg and director on our two Adverse Camber collaborations, Dreaming the Night Field, which has just had its final performance of the current tour with nothing else in the diary, which is a bit scary. And before that, Hunting the Giant's Daughter, which was our version of Kiloch and Olwen. And um, Paula, I just wanted to ask, what's it like suddenly coming from the world that you were in into this, first of all, storytelling world, and then, goodness me, the Mabinogi and all its weirdness? Yeah, well, when we first started working together 10 years ago, (laughs) which is crazy, (laughs) um, I had never really encountered the Mabinogi. Um, And and it is a very strange world um, of uh, all sorts of transformations. And um, yeah, uh, so the language was new to me. uh, The landscapes were new to me. Um, and it was a really, it has been a really exciting learning journey working with you all um, on these two productions, actually. Yeah. And for us too, I think there's the, the role of the dramaturg, which is maybe something I'd like you to expand on because it's, it's, it actually transformed the way we work. I mean, if I remember rightly, we, myself, Lynn and Stacey, had developed a, a way of working together, which is quite polite in as much as we gave room for each person to, to do their specialism and would stand back when they did their thing. And the first, just about the first thing you did was got us to mess that up so that we knew that at any moment, any member of the trio could take the lead and the others would just follow and improvise and just let their inherent creativity lead them to where they needed to go to support the person who was then taking the lead. So... That, that has completely transformed the way we work, and uh, big thank you for that. Uh, I'm just wondering how you, because your, your backgrounds in dance and various other theatre forms, was this the first time you'd come across storytelling per se, or had you come across it before? Um, I worked uh, in New Zealand, actually, with uh, some storytellers, and uh, and so that was the first time I'd in, encountered the work and worked as a kind of dramaturg director there um and it was a really new form for me uh and very surprising and i was surprised how much i enjoyed it as well um and so uh i think that what excites me about storytelling and how how it's similar to dance weirdly Mm. is that it feels very spatial to me so there's a kind of sense of uh, movement with the words with the with the text it's in formation um between bodies um yeah so uh so can i stop you because can you can we unpack that a bit that is really interesting so um there's a tendency to think of story in terms of narrative in terms of the red thread and uh maybe images in the audience's head or something but this spatial thing sounds really interesting so the way that a narrator or storyteller inhabits the space and also the relationship of the space between the, the listener and the teller or tellers. Mm. How, how does that work and what's the, what's the relationship? I think, well, actually, especially working with you, Michael, it's been really interesting to hear and feel how you place 
actions and narrative in and with places and or draw them out of places um and and they're kind of near and far depending on the kind of narrative voice that you choose and then also how that is positioned in relationship to the people in the room so how you bring the audience with you on a journey in different ways and and how they travel with you alongside you or um you know, or you're drawn into a kind of first character point of view. And, and so this movement really, when I'm working with storytellers, it, it kind of always feels as if it's, as if you're within a, a moving landscape of bodies and, and the audience are part of that. Yeah. So, so when you're working, when you're facilitating a storyteller's creativity and helping them find depth and focus and interest in, and so on in their work, what are you looking, I'm not quite sure which uh, preposition to use, are, what are you looking at or looking for? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, it depends on, on, on the starting points, hmm. um, the agreed starting points. I guess um, people begin, um, yeah, people get, begin with the things that inspire them. Hmm. Um, so... It starts with that conversation, what the inspiration is, why that story. Um, and then the more this conversation unfolds and uh, the kind of bones of the story are put into a space um, or told, um, sort of ideas start to appear, I think, from that and questions. So I don't really feel like I look for things or more more like uh, between us in a conversation about what's happening, things are encountered. And then those themes are kind of questioned and talked about. And then a shaping kind of begins between all of the people in the room according to what we've discussed, really. Um, yeah. So it feels like an encounter with something that's constantly emerging. And that the shaping of that uh, needs to be in such a way that the thing, the story and the telling is constantly emerging because it's never static and it's never going to be the same thing in the same place because it's not the same text. It's not set, yeah. you know, so it has to be fresh every time. So all of those questions are always around, you know, the bodies, the place, the people and how those things come together um, with confidence, I think, in the people who are performing them. I, can I ask you uh, a really simple, banal question about a favourite bits? Yeah. Either your favourite bit of a performance or your favourite bit of the process of making it? Um, I think from Dreaming the Night Field, uh, working here at the centre, um, we had this... <laughs> This really great experience with David when he when we forged this. Oh God, yes. Spear. <laughs> um, and um, and the hard work of it. Um, and whilst you know in the story it's just this very mm. small moment. Somehow this experience of the labour of life of this other time really stuck with me. So when I. I better, of... I, better, I better explain what happened. <laughs> um, so this was a point where we were doing some quite intense explorations in the landscape where the story actually happened. We went to Tom and Amir. We worked with a visual artist called Maria Hayes. 
she facilitated a whole load of really interesting exercises with us. So we were gathering impressions, we were inhabiting the landscape, we were doing bits of writing and so on. And uh, then we came back here to Velenichav and um, David <laughs> said, oh, you're back, great. And then he just said, do you want to forge a spear? So obviously we said yes. <laughs> so we had this forge, which strangely was a gift from nuns. Uh, <laughs> these nuns were devotees of St. Catherine, and St. Catherine is apparently the patron saint of, of blacksmiths. So they said, David, we want to give you this forge. So he had a forge, and it was all fired up. And we bashed away at uh, a rod of iron until we made a spearhead. And it really was a spearhead. And then myself and Lynn, we scraped away at these um, uh, ash branches in order to, to make... The, the shaft, because as everyone knows, in order to make a spear shaft, it's got to be ash wood. Uh, and then David did the tricky bit of fixing the, mm. the, the blade to the, the, the shaft. And then he said, shall we see if it goes through a stone? And of course, which is just for those of you who don't know, that's the denouement of the fourth branch when Shay throws his spear through the rock, which kills Gronopeber and the rock's still there. So we said, yeah, go on then. <laughs> and it was just, a, for me, a really interesting material-based exploration of what actually happens. Um, and I had no idea what was going to happen. David had a, a wattle uh, wall uh, and set up a chunky bit of slate. And we had a go at throwing a spear at this bit of slate. And when you hit that slate with a spear... It goes through. Yeah. It makes a big puncture hole and goes through. We were gobsmacked. Yeah. Um, so, yes, anyway, so that's what, just for those <laughs> those of you listening, that's what that was about. And I, um, I'm going to put a link to the video uh, on, mm. on this page so people can go and have a look at themselves uh, at what we did. But, yes, so. Yeah, so you. this moment then of this whole labour of, you know, and it was such a small kind of thing that we forged mm. and how long it took mm. and the effort you know uh, and the skill that you need to do all of those things and the fact that all of the story then seemed to be somehow attached to this the transformation of materials of people into animals of things mm. into other things of you know plants into people and you know so this moment of alchemy somehow um just seemed like the really perfect way into thinking about how long things take and how time is different to us now. Mm. So, um, you know, and then we started to think about the nuclear power station and this sort of kind of molecular level transformation. Mm. And so, so it all lots of things came out of this, this time here at the center um, based around this close connection with materials and talking about what they did in relationship to the landscape and the people and animals and things in them. Mm -hmm. um, so this, I felt it was really important and we would never have encountered that or even got to that working no. in another place. No. We had to be here yes. with that generosity of hosting that David has mm. of allowing you to encounter things in this place. So, you know, it really fed the thinking about the story, I think, um, to be here. 
Yeah, I think that was part of the process that made me personally see the stories in a very different way, where the materiality of the world and the stuff, uh, it's not our, we don't impose our image or our ideas on the stuff of the world. There's a definite negotiation. And our intention and attitude is apparent in the way we deal with them and uh, manipulate and use the materiality of the world. And it's a mutual uh, process. Mm. Uh, and actually, you can see it here. I mean, we're in this this little bower, basically, which is being created um, by, by, by David and the volunteers. And yesterday, when he, David gave us a, a guided tour, rather than the director of a centre who, who has... Um, an ambition that the centre become huge and enormous and famous through the world. He says, well, you know, in 50 years' time, this roundhouse, the roundhouse where we did the performance, um, the roof will decay, uh, it will fall in, the posts will slowly rot, and in a thousand years' time, the only thing that will be left will be a ring of stone. And he says that's, that's his ambition, mm. that's to, to make structures that return to the earth. Mm. And... In today's world of hubris and craziness, that seems extraordinarily sane. Mm. Yeah, totally. There's a deep, there's a real committed politics mm. in that. And I think that we spent a lot of time talking about those politics, um, you know, and about the politics of choice, which is kind of why we had, you know, we ended up with the plastic on the sticks and yeah. the, this kind of, um, you know... Uh, idea that things are wedged human-made things are wedged into the world in a different way mm. uh in this current contemporary time so we had conversations about what you know bringing a story up to date meant which is a bit kind of weird really when mm. you think because these you know these stories have are timeless in the sense that you know we're with animals and plants and all sorts of things on a daily basis but then we're kind of not in the sense that we're not closely mm. in contact or closely observing or, you know, if, if we're lucky, yeah. But mostly we spend our time ignoring the fact that these natural processes exist and trying to stop them or deny them or make them invisible in our houses and, you know, yeah. with kind of horrible bits of plastic stuff. And so it's, it was, you know, it was just really, really interesting um, to think through those yes. those issues and i remember tom and amir it's when when you stand on that mound which has got so many layers to it it's got a medieval layer there's a roman layer uh and older layers yet but you stand on top of it and there is that amazing view and then there is that nuclear power station and it is part of the view and we made it and we put it there mm. and it can't not be part of the story otherwise mm. what are we doing and we, and we talked a lot, uh, you know, about the corrugated iron and the yes. bits of plastic industrial waste and, and not to leave them out of the description, exactly. but to make them part of the contemporary encounter with the place that is also the place of the other. Indeed, yes. Uh, you know, it's all existing. Mm. Um, Fascinating. Paula Crutchlow, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Okay, that was... So I'll just leave that running. We'll just burble for a bit, the after bit. Uh, How do you feel now <laughs> about well, that story? 
how do I feel about this? I still don't know how I feel about the story. It's very much in flux. And it's, even though we've done it for nearly, I think we've done nearly 30 performances. Mm. It still feels like the new show to me. I still think of it as the new show that's still taking form, Mm. to be honest with you. Um, I, I wrote an article for Storytelling Self and Society where I was asked to make a, tr- a short transcript of a short part of the show and then talk about it, mm. which I did. And then, um, so I, I wrote the transcript and then the process of writing it obviously took quite a long time. And then when I read back what I'd written, I couldn't believe how short it was. Mm. Because in the intervening time, that what I say, although it's never written down, has evolved completely into a completely different thing. Mm. The first version, I was saying pretty much the bare minimum mm. because that's all my brain could cope with. Mm. But then bit by bit, I managed to be able to find ways of inserting other bits, other points of view, other modes of telling uh, that really I hadn't been able to do before because it was just all too new and too big and too complicated. Mm. Mm. It has evolved quite astonishingly since the beginning both in terms of i guess it because you've performed it in welsh as well yes. so the the kind of shifts in language are different mm. which is for me really exciting right. um yeah and the and the also the clarity of the sort of moments where you go from one bit of story into another because it, you know it, it's quite easy to get lost with yeah. you know these kind of quite crazy images you know it is yeah the story does do some very strange things and one of the really challenging things as a storyteller is that it doesn't do red thread very well Mm. there are plot holes and also very unusually for an orally derived story two things happen at once Mm. uh, which is essential for Gwydion to do what he does because Gwydion does this um, classic disruptor trick of of distracting people's attention. Mm. So while one person is paying attention to one thing, actually Gwydion is off doing another. Mm. And that happens a couple of times. And that's actually to put into a clean narrative is quite hard. Mm. I found a way in the end, but it's, it's that Gwydion. He's, um, you know, he's always up to something. Mm. And he, he makes the story do things that narrative, oral narrative generally does not do. Mm. But that's simply the way we think a narrative should be. Why should it be like that? It feels extraordinarily sophisticated, the story, Mm. which is quite odd, (laughs) you know, considering how old it is. Yeah. Um, And some of the other language that you've brought into it, the poetry, um, did you, it's from the Black Book? Oh, the Black Book Book of Carmarthen. I think when we found that, that was, that was a huge, was permission giving, weirdly, because there's the Mabinogi, uh, the Four Branches, there's their text. Then we, we uh, uprooted the, the traditional Welsh uh, way of looking at the stars, mm. the names of the constellations and so on. That was really, really interesting because we had an, a sky layer as well as an earth layer and an mm. underworld layer. And uh, the Black Book of Carmarthen, the Song of the Soul, it just blew my mind, mm. where it is... A, it is a hymn to the soul, but the soul as something that enlivens matter and is matter itself in a way. I was gleaming fire before I came into the world. Mm. Um, and this fantastic bit where the, the poem talks about, 
I live in the singing voice. Mm. I weave myself into hearth and loom and forge. So it's in this materiality of the world that the soul exists. And I thought, oh my God, yes, of course. Where else could it be? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but that was a massive eye-opener for me and made me stop trying. Mm. It, may, it was like a signal from the medieval past and beyond saying, actually, you know, it's okay. This, this does make sense. Mm. You can trust it. It will work. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And really resonant, I think, uh, for the times that we live in. Yes, absolutely. Actually. Absolutely. Yeah. It's very urgent, this thing about our connectivity with all things yeah. Uh, yeah. in the way that we live. Yeah. Rather than a dominance and exploitation. Yeah. Yes. Fascinating. Thank you so much, Paula, for taking time to talk to me. And uh, I do hope we have more conversations soon. Yes.